0: there, folks, and welcome to Christ in Every Word, a podcast of the Concordia Bible Institute housed on the beautiful campus of Concordia University, Wisconsin. This is your opportunity to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures with me, Dr. Brian Gurman, associate professor of theology here at the university and the director of the Concordia Bible Institute. We are making our way through the book of Genesis. Christianity in Genesis is what I'm titling this. Where do we see the person and work of Christ in the book of Genesis, and by extension, our life in him? Where is the church? How does he live and move and have his being with his church, and how do these texts bear witness or even constitute The life of the church of all times and places. We've seen this as we've gone through Cain and Abel, for example. Two different churches from then on throughout the history of the world, Luther would say. Chapter 5 was last time a genealogy, and even then, what is God doing for the sake of his church? Well, I'll take Enoch, for example, an example of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting for the church here on out. Chapter 6 takes a little bit of a turn, doesn't it? After that genealogy, we left off last time with Noah having three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now that right away is sometimes genealogy gives you uh, just one son. Here we have three, and we're going to see in chapter 9 how important it is to talk about these three distinctly. They all have a specific role, Um, we'll see, that's getting ahead of ourselves, but uh, for what the church will be. Uh, throughout the history of the world. But nonetheless, in 6, we kind of focus in on on Noah, and this transitions into the flood. So we've done the Cain and Abel, then we've done the genealogy, and we kind of had a fresh start, as it were, last time with uh, the forgiven, purified uh, genealogy, as it were, tracking the one who is to come. And then we have, go figure. It's almost like the book of Judges where things roll along And then whammo, the fall into sin, Eve eats from the tree, Adam eats from the tree. And then Cain and Abel, whammo, terrible stuff. And then Genesis 5, hey, fresh start, as it were. You can listen to that other podcast for more on that. And then what happens, whammo, chapter 6, it starts like this. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. This is the first half of the chapter. The point that I was making with Judges is, oh my, the cycle of sin and uh, forgiveness and terrible sin and forgiveness and terrible sin. This is just going to be the story of the Israelites, the story of, again, Judges, the story of the wilderness, the story of Christianity. Another week goes by and Sunday morning it's, I, a poor, miserable sinner... Had thoughts of heart that were only evil continually, you might say, to pick up the language here from Genesis chapter 6. And that's also, so that's also the story of the church here. And that's what's going to lead into how, I'm going to draw a lot on Luther here, I think, for this. This is kind of an odd, you know, you hear that Nephilim, who are the Nephilim and what's going on here? The 120 years and the spirit and just, this is kind of an odd moment. And it's been understood in various ways. I'm going to draw a little bit on Luther here. And it's going to tie into how he's kind of making his case throughout the book. We saw in Cain and Abel two different churches. The Church of Cain, the Church of Abel. The Church of Cain, again, Cain meaning, I've got it. I've gotten the man. Cain, Kanha, I've acquired. I've gotten it. The one who will, oh wait, nope, didn't turn out so well. Cain kills Abel. Abel, in the meantime, is that church that is what? Havel, Abel, Havel, um meaninglessness or vanity, a mist, a vapor, a breath. It's there for a second and then gone. Nothing in the eyes of the world. Forsaken, persecuted, afflicted, empty pews, struggling finances, and so on. That's Abel. That's the true church uh, until the end of the world, Luther says. The church of Cain is the one that's going to think uh, you can earn God's favor by works or by persecuting the true church and so on. That continues here for Luther in chapter 6. I think it's very compelling. Um, I think he's right, and that is when we hear the sons of God and daughters of man, I mean, sons of God itself is kind of a cryptic phrase. It can refer to angels. We see this, for example, in like First Kings 22, Um, what Job one, you know, you said there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Well, from going up and down to and fro on the earth and, you know, walking up and down. Um, so it can mean angels, but at the same time, sons of God can also mean just sons of God and people, humanity, humans. Um, those who, uh, in Luther's reading, I think is right. Those who were part of the true church, sons of God, those who were believing in the promised seed. This is like the church uh, of Cain and Abel played out on a global scale, you might say. Sons of God, think church of Abel that has spread globally. The sun. This is this is kind of a wide ranging, a wide sweeping. Statement here, the sons of God, just in general, on the face of the earth, a global sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, daughters of man. Notice the contrast between God. That's one way to kind of, I don't know, contrast them. Daughters of man, people who were of the church of Cain, fleshly people, just they were, uh, what would you say? Uh, for Luther, they belonged to the church of uh, Cain. They gratified the desires of the—I'm just reading from him now. They gratified the desires of the flesh, and um, they were those with whom the sons of God wanted to interact and finally marry. Uh, In other words, they wanted to take wives from this, Luther would say, Canaanite church. Or no, sorry, Canaanite. Sorry, that's a Canaanite, not Canaanite from Canaan, Cainites, Church of Cain, um, as many as they wanted and whomever they chose. And this Luther is, for, for Luther is, exactly what happens. Now you can think beyond just physical, literal marriage. Elsewhere in the Bible, the prophets are big on, anytime there's idolatry, a mixing of the pure teaching with false teaching, a mixture of the true church with the false church, anytime that happens, that's a, That's an infidelity. So the the language of marriage or um, fidelity, uh, husband, wife, so on, is used with the prophets for the relationship between God and his people, between Christ and his church. They're in a marriage. Heresy, false doctrine, pursuing um, idolatry is de facto um, a perversion, spiritual infidelity, um that's why the prophet speaks so much of harlotry or whoredom, you sons of Israel or people of Israel, you've committed whoredom against me. We're in a marriage together, and any false teaching, false any idolatry is uh, to break this marriage. So when we see this sons of God see that the daughters of man were attractive, this is the true church mingling with the false church, the true church saying, You know what, maybe we need to cater to the ways of the world. Maybe they're on to something. Uh, maybe we need to compromise a little bit. Maybe we need to get lukewarm on what we're teaching. Think Revelation. Would that you were either hot or cold. Okay. Luther says these are the peeps that they had the promise of the of the blessed seed, the one who is to come, and yet they were persuaded and tempted by the ways of the world. They saw that the daughters of men were attractive. So they took as their wives any as they chose. And then the Lord says, uh, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, free his flesh. His day shall be 120 years. Okay, um, this is an interesting little line here. First things first, Luther says um, that this cannot last. This business of compromising true doctrine, this business of turning from the Lord's word, um, Luther says, "Man is hostile toward God when this happens. It doesn't trust. He doesn't trust in God. Above all things, he doesn't believe His word. He doesn't confess it. He doesn't teach it rightly, and so on. And so, it leads to a, a hostility towards God. It's a lack of trust in God, lack of faith in God, and that is detrimental to salvation." Um, man, Luther writes, "Man persists in his carnal ways." He ridicules the word. He persecutes and hates my spirit. Uh, God says, well, then what happens? Well, I can't forever bear with this contempt of my word. This kind of behavior, catering to the false church, mixing true doctrine with false doctrine, this is the kind of stuff that drives away the Lord's spirit. My spirit shall not abide in man forever. He's flesh. And yet, God gives a set period of time. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And this is kind of an—I mean, this is sort of a this is sort of an odd thing. People live. I mean, this is kind of a, a debate because people lived over a hundred and to be over a hundred and twenty years after the flood. So it's kind of like, well, what? How does this? Is this not a literal one hundred and twenty years? Uh, think of other times in the Bible where you know, Psalm 90, the length of man's days is 70 years, three score and 10, or even by reason of strength, 80. You know, this sort of like, does that mean that everybody lives a literal 70? I mean, generally speaking, I mean, right now, what is it? I don't know, in the 70s, life expectancy, who knows? But the point is that you get a set period of time, and that's that, or even by reason of strength, maybe a little more, 80. Um, This 120 refers to, now Luther took this, as um, a kind of time frame where God uh, would allow for repentance before the flood would would come. Now, I think I think he's on the right track. I think this is this is fascinating. I wouldn't say it's a literal 120 years, but what I would say is that the Lord has said this kind of behavior drives out my spirit. But at the same time, he doesn't immediately act on it. He could do the flood in a second. And yet he says his days shall be 120 years. He allows a set period of time mercifully. I mean, this would be the other point, And that is, it is very gracious and merciful that the Lord is slow to anger. And then he's he's wanting uh, all to come to repentance and to the knowledge of the truth, as Second Peter would say. Uh, And so there is a great mercy here, Luther sees, and I think he's right. He's granting adequate time for repentance. Put away your sinful ways. Repent, confess, and and return to the Lord. And so Luther writes, he fixed this definite and adequate time for repentance that men may come to their senses and escape the punishment. I think he's absolutely right. There is this, I'm going to still be gracious and merciful in this. And this is totally the life of the church as well. Um, how often do uh, do we go astray, do our eyes run after idols uh, throughout our, our living and moving, and yet our eyes should be fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, you know, and so on. Um, so Luther sees mercy here, and I think he's right. And finally, what well, we're getting close to our break already, um, but this is also where you get the Nephilim, and this is another one of these, like, I mean, Nephilim... What is this? Uh, The giants, literally. Some translations would have put it that way. And Luther thinks, I mean, is there physical stature involved in this? Who knows? Maybe so. But also, Luther thinks uh, especially of the reputation, those who run the planet. (laughs) You might think of the Nephilim these days are, oh, boy. I mean, the big businesses, the places that just, I don't know, media and big business and just what runs the world these days. Uh, the Nephilim were on the earth, and uh, the sons of God came into the daughters of man. They were the mighty men who are old, men of renown. This business of just mingling, the true church mingling with what's attractive in the eyes of the world, what's powerful, what will give the church some status, some influence. Um, Luther talked of these Nephilim as arrogant thugs. <laughs> Uh, who usurped both the government and the priesthood. They were people who were like enemies of both the state and the church. They were totally just, um, they were corrupt in ways that were against both church and state. Uh, Such men were boldly opposed to the Holy Spirit when he warned and treated, taught and reproved through Lamech Noah and the sons of Noah. In other words, Noah was a huge preacher and his sons and so on. They were proclaiming the word, these thugs, these tyrants, these... Nephilim would persecute the church and also use the things of the world to just get earthly power and status. And uh, the reason why this is such a big corruption is that the the true church is tempted to go after those ways of the world continually. That's where we see Christianity in this, this business of flirting with all this worldly power. Who's at the top? Um, How can we get ahead quickly? Well, we can compromise in doctrine, for example, things that aren't very popular in the eyes of the world, right? We'll get on the good side of the ones with all the power. We'll have security, not in the Lord, but in uh, big businesses and the one, all the movers and shakers and so on. More to say here, but uh, that'll get us kind of dialed in here. Genesis chapter 6, we'll be right
1: back. We'll be back in just a moment to the Concordia Bible Institute podcast. In the meantime... I'd like to have you consider this question. What is most important in higher education? How do you prioritize all the knowledge to be gained at an institution of higher learning? Concordia University, Wisconsin, located on the shores of Lake Michigan in Mequon, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee, is an institution that is committed to excellence in learning, but at the same time realizes that excellence in itself is insufficient without development in vocation. We believe that God works through our vocations our callings, in order to serve the needs of those around us. The mission statement of Concordia University puts it this way, Concordia University, Wisconsin, is a Lutheran higher education community committed to helping students develop in mind, body, and spirit for service to Christ in the church and the world. You can learn more about the over 70 programs offered at Concordia by visiting the website, www.cuw.edu. And if you're benefiting from our Christ in Every Word podcast. I encourage you to support this ministry by mentioning it to others and by offering your monetary support. Please consider supporting the Concordia Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org and clicking on the contribute page. And now, back to the podcast.
0: Alrighty there folks, we are back with our study of Genesis chapter 6. A fascinating chapter, and we? we got the reference to the Nephilim we just talked about again. Uh, Luther took that as like these thugs, these most powerful on the planet. And the way that this relates to Christianity is that this is the continual state of the church it's a perpetual reality how this works as true church, the sons of God constantly wanting to enter into marriages as it were to marry um, what is attractive in the eyes of the world the power and influence and glory thereof. the Lord sees that the wickedness of man was great in the earth every intention of the thoughts of the heart were evil continually. this is a good little piece for original sin isn't it? Behold! I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's pretty rough. Only evil continually. It's a it's a sad situation. It's it's a corruption so deep. Luther would say in another context, that "It must finally just be believed." That's how bad it is. And of course, this has everything to do with what kind of savior. If you're a little bit sinner, you need a little bit savior, right? And and so we need to be serious about what sin is all about. This is one window into that terrible reality only evil continually the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart now this one strikes at a that's a kind of a low blow I guess does God have regrets and how do I mean that's one thing how do you even think through can God regret something uh, he regretted Saul being king. You know, there are moments where he, he has regret, and then at the same time, it's like, God doesn't regret. He's not a man that he should have regret. And so you have to think through, like, how he he, he does and doesn't at the same time. Uh, kind of like prayer, you might say. He's all, he knows, and yet at the same time, it's he's moved by prayer. Now, how can both things be? He promises both. Um. I mean, this is one of these things. For Luther, it was it was actually tied to the office of the holy ministry. When God is grieved in his heart, and he's regretting this, and he says, I'll blot out man whom I have created. Um, I'm sorry that I have made them. Um, Luther sees this as um, the office of the ministry is grieved because of the true church running after the false church. And because the office is grieving, God himself is grieving. Uh, it's, it's an indication of how close the Lord is with his church. Um, Noah, and the, I'll just read from Luther here. Noah and the other fathers were filled with grief when the Spirit revealed his wrath to them. This kind of continual, look at how evil and sinful the situation is. Look at how often the true church is making compromises. Look at how how miserable the condition of the true church is in all times and places. The inexpressible groanings, Luther continues, of these outstanding men are assigned to God himself because they proceed from his spirit. There's one spirit, the Holy Spirit, God, and, and also in his office. And when the office grieves like this, we've been preaching We've been teaching, and look at the flock. They look so harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. We've been doing this. They've been running after the ways of the world. It's grieving us, and so, Luther says, it grieves the Lord. He's touched by the afflictions of others. He feels, I mean, think about Paul, Saul, right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I feel those hits. When you persecute my church, I feel them. I take those hits, and so Luther said, "This is just the ongoing situation." Actually, I mean his words. This is what the church does. It, it's the perpetual characteristic of the true church. Luther writes, "It's not only experiences suffering and is dishonored and held in contempt, but it also prays for those who afflict it and is gravely concerned about it." The church is always a wall against the wrath of God. It grieves, it agonizes, it prays, it pleads, it teaches, it preaches, it admonishes. As long as the hour of judgment has not yet arrived but is impending, and when it sees that these activities are of no avail, what else can it do than grieve deeply over the destruction of impenitent people?" seeing a large number of their kinsmen and relatives about to perish, increased the grief of the godly fathers. This grief Moses was unable to portray in a better and clearer manner than to state that the Lord was sorry that he had made man. Wow, what a powerful statement. This is the situation. The Lord desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And yet this is, so this, I'm sorry that I've made him is, it's like the, I don't know, in some ways the, it, it, it would have been better for him not to have been born, how this is going to go. And you think, well, why don't you, but he still went through with the, the creation, of course, and he still has mercy and he still extends his preached word again and again. And he favors Noah, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's awesome. And we read in other places, I mean, know it why? I mean, this is also, even when the Lord should just, you know what, it's done so. Let's just wipe the hard drive clean and start this project over. He mercifully not only grants time for repentance, but He also sets apart and preserves His true church. He has mercy upon those who are believing in the promised seed to come. And so why does God favor Noah? Luther says he walked in the fear of the Lord. He believed uh, the, the universal promise about the seed of the woman, the one who is to come. God preserves a church against even the gates of hell. No matter how corrupt it is, no matter how, to, no matter how empty the pews and so on, God preserves his church and will until the second coming of our Lord. And so he finds the Lord is merciful. He works through one for the sake of all, one little family for the sake of the whole planet. And, of course, he works through one only begotten son for the forgiveness of all rebellion and chasing after the ways of the world. So Noah was a blameless man. He walked with God. He had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. His language of walking with God is like, you've been raised to new life with me. It's the Enoch language. You've walked with God, you've been baptized, you've been uh, buried with Christ, you've been raised to walk with him so that a new man may come forth and daily rise to live before him in righteousness and purity forever, Luther says. It's the Enoch thing. You've been given resurrected life already right here, right now. And so Noah walked with God. This is an amazing Look at what the church is. Um, I mean, this is, this is a terrible situation. It's, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, and the Lord could have very well done that. And yet, even then, um, he mercifully preserves a remnant, and he um, says, make yourself an ark, <laughs> and cover it inside and outside with pitch. He even tells him, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. Well, go ahead and do it. Well, here I'm going to allow for an ark to remain in the midst of it. And the amazing thing here about all these, I'm just looking at the rest of chapter 6. We have the dimensions. you ever notice that there's a lot of dimensions here about this ark? It's 300 cubits, it's breadth 50 cubits, it's height 30 cubits. Make a roof and set the door and so on. The deal here is that this is the tabernacle. This is the temple. This is the church. The reason why you get so much, uh, I mean, Luther would even call this a new a new world and a new church would take, take place here. Uh, you're going to see this also on the other side as well. But the reason you're getting all these dimensions and so on, this is God's dwelling place. This is the, your safe haven. This is the sanctuary. This is the ark of the Christian church into which baptism places you the kind of, what, flood that drowns original sin, evil thoughts only continually, and uh, brings forth a new man, lives in safety above the chaos of this world, think waters and so on, the destroying waters, the destructive waters that drown all the evil of body and soul and that's why you get all this two by two and male and female i think the animals all this this is a picture there's, they're kind of on in some ways there are some silly allegories out there like these these animals stand for this kind of person and that kind of person but in other ways they're really profound and i'm drawing on some history of interpretation here but there's there's a way to see this arc as a picture of all the world f- flooding pun intended right Sorry, had to. To the church, um, animals as, uh, this is kind of an old school way of, one way of looking at it, animals as depicting other nations sometimes. When Adam a- names the animals, for example, some have taken that as like, well, this is a picture of all the nations being brought into the holy name. Um, whatever you make of that, there's something to be said for this ark. We know as a picture of the church, this is just straight out of Peter, And the business of male and female, two by two, um, this marriage emphasis with, you know, the the marriage of the sons of God, daughters of men. We have male and female, two by two. We have this flocking of all over to be in this ark of all kinds of different, what, kinds, all kinds of different male and female all over the place, different kinds, you know this kind of that's why it's there's kind of a long-standing tradition here of there's some sort of reflection of na- nations tongues, tribes, peoples, languages, flocking, again animal terms here, all kinds of different kinds to be grafted into to be in the safe haven of the one holy Christian church. Noah does this as a high priest who will reflect the kind of Noah, the rest is what his name means, that will get in the greatest high priest to come and in the church that he offers in all times and places, the sanctuary of his body and blood and word for us. Great stuff here in Genesis 6. We're going to have to call it there. Stay tuned. We'll keep moving. As we consider Christianity in the book of Genesis, the mission of the Concordia Bible Institute is to provide Christ-centered Bible instruction from distinguished experts who teach Christ in every word of the Old and New Testaments to strengthen faith and spread belief in the one true God. Again, if you benefit from this podcast series, I encourage you to consider supporting the Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on our contribute page. Until next time, my friends, I'm Dr. Brian Gurman, wishing you all God's blessings in Christ Jesus our Lord.